Life is wonderful because of the way that he loves. What a beautiful sentiment. And it's true that without Jesus, without our Father, without the blessings that come from a relationship with him, life would not be pleasant. And as the Apostle Paul says, we would be people of misery or pity. But we are glad to have a God that loves us and a God that is good and a God that loves me, as we have sang together today. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 6, where we'll read in just a moment or two. And we are indeed grateful for the fact that our God is active and is ever-present in the way that we go about living our lives in service to him. And we think about the phrase, I will, and think about all the things that God has done and all the things that God will do in the future. We are so very blessed, as Alan pointed out, at the outset of our study together today to be the beneficiaries of your presence And we are here not only thankful for that, but thankful for the opportunity to worship our God together. If you're here for the first time, we welcome you here to our Northfield Boulevard family and hope that you'll continue to want to associate and attend and encourage us. And we hope that all will be good in our service together to God. Wanted to just say a couple of personal things. I appreciate the opportunity to have shared some personal thanks in that note that Brother Allen read. But as I, the last uh, 48 to 72 hours being back in the Mid-South, being back in Tennessee, there are some things that I've reflected on after traveling, uh, as many of you travel, and things that you uh, think about when you travel. You have a four-hour plane trip, there's lots of time to think and ponder. And one of the things of a list of four that I came up with, and I even wrote down my list of fours, one, I'm not as young as I used to be. And traveling is getting more challenging through the years than those of you that are young, you can get on a plane and travel across the world and it's no big deal. But those of us that travel now four hours, it's a big deal for us. Number two, I spent uh, four days preaching a series of five different sermons on the end times with Christians in California. And that is not an oxymoron. There are Christians in California. And sometimes uh, we give California bad rap, and sometimes uh, there are aspects of it that deserve uh, its bad reputation. But the best thing about the Golden State are the Christians that are there, including uh, many that are friends of some of our own members and who attended and worshiped with them in years past. Let me also say on a personal level that one of their shepherds is a man that we've been praying for, and I had the opportunity to to be with Shane Grow, you remember that name, over the last six to nine months, who's had some serious medical issues, he's doing very well. And he's very appreciative of the prayers of the brethren here. Let me also suggest, thirdly, that the truth is still powerful, and it works, and it is appreciated. And I was very uh, thankful to have many good comments from the efforts that were put forth over the course of those five sermons. And then fourthly, To echo the words of Dorothy, there's no place like home, there's no place like Northfield Boulevard, and it is good to be with you, and we miss you when we're away from you. And we are glad to be back, and glad to be an encouragement to you, hopefully, as well.
I want us to look at these three verses in Exodus chapter 6, then establish the context in which they are written, and then make a series of a half a dozen observations about the text. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, Teach them, preach to them, Moses, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage I am the Lord. Did you notice how many different times the phrase I will is used in that very short text? I counted seven different times that the phrase I will is used because our God is indeed an active God. He is a God that is always busy, who never takes a break in terms of caring for us and providing for us. And indeed, he is so good because he loves me and the way that he loves me is beyond any sort of comprehension comprehension as we've been led so ably in our songs by our brother Caleb today. But I want us to start by looking at the text in which we are focusing our attention today, and it seems to me that having at least a a thumbnail sketch or a a cursory overview of Exodus chapter 6 is important in helping us to remember what God promised and then delivered. God, you remember back in chapters 3 and 4, chose Moses to be his instrument of deliverance. God could have chosen to have delivered the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage by any means necessary. He could have snapped his fingers and then Egypt would have fallen and the empire would have ceased to exist and the people would have been freed from their shackles of slavery and been allowed to go free. But he says, I want you, Moses, to be my spokesman. I want you because I want you to grow and because I believe that you have the ability to, to share the message in a, in a better way than anybody else. And of course, Moses was really uh, struck by that not in a good way, and came up with his reasons or excuses as to why he was not the right guy for the job. But note, if you would, that chapter 6 appears before an additional appearance before Pharaoh, which happens in subsequent chapters or in this latter part of this particular text, that it comes before the ten plagues, it comes before the Red Sea crossing. And so it's also important to acknowledge that God is promising, I will do great things for you. And the lesson for us now some thousands of years later is that God will continue to do great things for us as well. We have to be obedient to our God and to be faithful to him in order to receive those great blessings. And so what I wanted to do is to look at the three things that God says I've done for you and then look at the three things that God says he will do for us in order to encourage us and in order to help us in service. And so we start by looking at what God has done. And we start with number one in our list here, in that God makes a series of I will statements in divine promises to Israel. Note, if you would, those three. Number one, I will bring you out. 
Note, if you would, that there in verse 6, that when he says, I will bring you out, that there are lots of words that the Holy Spirit uses to make sure that the readers get the message and get the message clearly. I'm looking at verse 6, for example, uh, in particular, and if you want to underline these three key words that are used, I encourage you to do so. But he says, I'm going to bring you out. It's the idea of I'm going to break out or I'm going to carry you out. I love the image of God saying, I'm going to pick you up like a child and I'm going to carry you out of Egyptian bondage. And I'm going to break you out of slavery, out of prison, out of bondage, and make it so that you are all better. Just as much as Brother Jason talked about catching individuals out of the fire of sin today, so we also are carried out by our great God. The second word that is used there in verse 6, where he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, I will secondly, I will rescue you. Literally, it's the idea of snatching away. And those of you that are reading from the English Standard Version or the New American Standard see that the word that is used there is the word deliver. And so this is deliverance that comes from our God. This is salvation that comes from our God. And then the third thing, which is certainly important to us as members of the Northfield Boulevard Church, our website even advertises the idea of redemption and and God's redeemed people, is he says there in verse 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with my mighty power, and with great judgments. And we know what redeeming means. It's the idea of purchasing or buying back. These are all things that God says, I've done, and I'm going to continue to do for you. This is the God of action we serve. And then secondly, in the text here, he says, what have I done? He says, I will take you as my people. I love this particular concept because in the New King James and the New American Standard and in other versions in the, in the, in the New Testament, the idea is, is he takes those of us who are not a people and makes us a special people or makes us a people. You see, without God, you and I are nobodies. We are of no consequence. We are unimportant. But God says, you are important. And God says, if you serve me, I will grant you a home in heaven. The King James Version, which is a version that a few of you are reading from this morning, renders it, I will take you to me. And it's translated as the idea of acceptance. We know that God does not accept sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in our closing on our study together today. But God says, I'm willing to accept you in spite of your sin if you repent of it, and by my grace I will save you. And indeed, as we read from the letter to the Hebrews, God says, I will remember those sins no more. What a powerful passage to consider. Part of being God's people means that he is their God in the first place. And if you would, consider what I would call the cultural import of having gods to protect and to provide. You see, 
Moses was in many ways the character who was going to reintroduce God to the people who had no real basis for an understanding of a singular God. But rather, in this culture, thousands of years ago, they were used to numerous little gods, little G-gods. And so the idea is you would have a god of harvest, and you would have a god of parenthood, and you'd have a god of the water, and you've had a god of the moon, you've had a god of the sun. And these are all concepts with which they must have been familiar And then Moses says, I'm here to tell you that the God, the only God is going to redeem you. He is going to rescue you. He's going to bring you out and he's going to take you and make you a special people. Because indeed the book of Exodus is to be considered a reintroduction to who God was and who God is. And you know one of the great things about studying the Bible with someone who has virtually no knowledge of the Bible is being able to introduce them to God. Sometimes, and you may find this in your uh, attempts to teach and share the gospel with others, you will find your job made easier if they haven't been confused by false doctrines over the previous 15, 20, 25 years. That's not to say that we throw those people to the side and say, well, they've been confused, so there's nothing I can do to clear up that confusion. But one of the most pleasant experiences that I've ever had, or a series of pleasant experiences, is when I've studied with individuals who have very little knowledge of the Bible, and you are for the first time introducing them to Jesus. Not to the Jesus that everyone knows about and is popularized in media, but to the Jesus who says tough things but loving things. To the God who says there's a hell and there is a heaven. And introducing them to that truth is absolutely a whole lot of fun. And I don't say that just be uh, spiteful, the, the word fun, but Bible study should be an enjoyable experience. And it ought to be something that is in, inviting for us to engage in. There's a third thing as to what God has done in the text, and that he says, I will bring you into the land. God does not say, I'm going to rescue you from slavery, but then you're on your own to make it to the promised land. Instead, God promises to be an active participant and indeed the active guidance in getting Israel from Egypt to Canaan. And for those of you that may be a little bit unfamiliar with biblical terminology, we're using Israel here as a group of people, as God's chosen people to get them from Egypt where they were in bondage to Canaan, which is the promised land. And indeed, we sing about Canaan from time to time. Turn over, if you would, just five chapters or six chapters in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13 and in verse 21. In verse 21 and 22, there's a, there's a statement that I want us to really kind of focus on before we move on a little bit further. But in verse 21, it says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And that's great. We, and and our, our fifth graders could tell you that. Yes, there was, the, there was this pillar in the daytime, and there was this light or fire in the nighttime to guide them, and that would keep them safe as long as they were fixated on that in front of them. 
But in verse 22, the very last verse of what we call chapter 13, the statement says, he, speaking of our Lord, of our God, who is the one who says, I will, I will, I will, on seven different occasions, he says, God did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from being before the people. So God says, I'll be there for you. You just have to make sure that you stay focused on me. And remember that it seems to me that God's planning is evidenced by his swearing to the promise that he made back in chapter 6 and as illustrated there in chapter 13 as well. Those are the things that our God has done for us. And it would be unfortunate if we thought about God only in the past tense and he no longer acted in the ways that he acted in the past. You know, if the Bible was just a history book, then that would be unfortunate in that we would only read this and say, wow, that was great for those people then. But today we don't have that hope. That would be miserable. And that would be sad. But instead, we transition to the final section of our study, and that is what our God will do. Because we have an active God who says, I will, seven times. And we know that in biblical numerology, that it seems that seven is this concept of completeness or perfection or continuity. And so what is it that God will do for us? Let me suggest to you three things that God will do for us. Because the Bible is not just a history book, but is in many ways an introduction to us of our God and an instruction book for future generations. And it tells us of the things that God will do for us. Let me suggest to you first and foremost that our God will bring us out. And you may say, well, we aren't in Egyptian bondage. We aren't limited of our freedoms. But we, if we are not with our God, are slaves. If you are not a Christian, you are a slave to sin. Or... If you are a Christian who's gone back into the world and you haven't been faithful for months or years or maybe even decades, you've now become a slave to unrighteousness as outlined by Romans chapter 6. And we need to appreciate the seriousness of the sin, as we'll talk about in just a moment, and as Brother Jason talked about even in our Bible class today, because sin is serious business. God, incidentally, is the only one who is capable of doing this. Nobody else is going to carry you out of bondage. And instead, what ends up happening is that people in the world would suggest that your job or that your family or that your recreation can carry you out. Remember that terminology that we used back in chapter 6 and verse 6? Will carry you out and make life better for you. The world is filled with people with great families, wonderful jobs, and great hobbies who are miserable individuals because they do not have hope in what matters. And as I said on a Wednesday evening or Sunday evening just a couple of weeks ago, we have all been associated with individuals who see a loved one die and that loved one has no hope 
and that is the most miserable series of events that you can possibly ponder. But we have hope in Jesus the Christ. We most certainly have a significant role to play. We won't take the time to read Romans chapter 12. Read all 20-some verses. But this is where the Apostle Paul would say that we are to be a living sacrifice, that we are to be holy and blameless in the sight of our Lord, that we are not to be like the world, but we are to be unlike the world. This is where he says, don't love in a hypocritical way. This is where he says that you put others first and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and on and on in that powerful 12th chapter of the book of Romans. God brings us out. But God is the one who adds us to the called out. When we become Christians, when we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, it's not a matter of some man saying, I'm now going to assign you to the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's God who does that adding. And we're thankful for that. And I'm glad that I'm not the judge. I'm glad I'm not the adder or the subtractor. I'm glad that he's the one that gets to choose those things because he is righteous all together as we read and as we sing. And only God can rescue, only God can redeem us from the ugliness of sin. And let me just take just a moment there and re-highlight this idea that we talked about in our Bible class this morning And that is sin is ugly at its very core. And we live in a culture, perhaps maybe more than any other in past world history, that seems to popularize sin, make it glamorous, make it seem like it is fun and enjoyable. And we can get caught up in the trap of thinking that it's not that big of a deal. We talked about bigger sins versus lesser sins in our studied together, and rightly concluded that whether you are an axe murderer or you are one who engages in gossip, and I'm trying to use extremes there of what the world would associate as that which is wrong or right, they'll both land you in hell. They'll both keep you from a friendship with God. They'll both keep you from heaven. And anything in between, whatever you want to do and lining up what is the more heinous or less heinous of sins, we as good Bible students understand that yes, lying is wrong as much as is adultery, as much as is murder, as much as is you name it. They are all wrong in God's sight. And we will give an answer for the ways in which we've conducted ourselves given the ugliness of sin. Thanks be to God who remembers those sins no more and who forgives us willingly. And I'm glad, going back to Brother Jason's point this morning and the point that someone made a couple different times in our Bible class, that God doesn't forgive us in the ways that we sometimes fail to forgive others. I'm glad that he forgives perfectly. Now, we have to conduct ourselves in the right way. This second point, we have a role to play. But the fact is, is you and I can be rescued and can be redeemed by our God. Let me suggest to you this, and that is God makes us 
his people. I want to look at three passages all in the New Testament for just a couple of moments here. And I want to start in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. And you may know already where I'm going. And I've even kind of hinted at this at the outset of our study together this morning. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. And he says, blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and in those last two words, in Christ. There are zero blessings outside of Jesus Christ. Every blessing that matters occurs because of Christ and because of his coming and because, as Brother uh, Gochi said in our, in our Lord's Supper talk this morning, because he rose from the dead. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We are adopted as children into Jesus Christ, into our God, and a relationship with him. Paul would write to the evangelist Titus and would say to Titus, among other things, there's an important role that God plays in making us special and making us important in his service. And in chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's a tall order, by the way. That's not easy to do. And anybody that says that's easy hasn't done it. Live soberly, righteously, and godly is tough in a world filled with everything that is but that but we do it because it's the right thing to do. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and then verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, and watch what he says here, his own special people, zealous for good works. We are a special people because we are God's people. And if you are not a child of God, with all due respect, Or if you are an erring child of God, with all due respect, you are no longer as special as you once were or what you can be. God says, I want you to be my special people. But you have to live in a way that in order to make that happen, you've got to take certain actions. And in Peter's first letter to the Christians who were dispersed, in 1 Peter chapter 2, And in verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and there it is again, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then verse 10 is just uh, so apparent to me as to how wonderful we are, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. These early Christians who were facing intense persecution did not have Genesis to Revelation in the way that you have in a single volume that you could buy online or at Walmart or some other store. They didn't have all that information 
readily available to them. And so they had to depend on one letter written by Paul versus that which was written to Peter and James and John and the others. And so Peter comes along and says, I want you all to know that you are without mercy, are now with mercy, because you are saved according to God's incredible grace. That's what God does today. And thirdly and finally, God promises us a future land, which is the same thing that he did some 3,500 to 4,000 years ago when he, through Moses, addressed these people. God promises us a better place, a future place. And as one of our brothers says, and I've now incorporated this, so I've, I've plagiarized one of our elders, we are not going to a better place, but we are going to a far better place. And that makes all the difference. In 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 11, in, or chapter 2, verse 24, excuse me. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 24, read with me, if you would, this final passage together. The apostle John writes, and he says in the second chapter, verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Do we not sing the song, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way? Do we sing that just because it's a catchy tune? Or do we sing it because we are really on to Canaan's land and we're making our way that direction? That's the reason that we should sing it, even if it is a catchy tune. But we sing it because it matters. We sing it because heaven is what really matters. All of this goes back to what Brother Keith read for us in Romans chapter 15. In those powerful verses that say, we then who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not as strong. And he goes on and says in verse 4 that the things that were written before were written in part for our learning, that we might gain understanding and appreciation from the words of even things that were said thousands of years ago by a man who's long left this earth by the name of Moses. God says, I will do these things. There in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8, there is not a single I might or I perhaps will, but an emphatic I will. That's the God that we serve and the God that you can serve today. I just simply want to ask this question, and that is, are you going to Canaan's land? Are you going to heaven? And I'm going to talk more about this in two or three weeks, depending on um, next time I preach on a Sunday morning. But we ought never be a people who in response to are you going to heaven respond by saying, I'm not sure. Because if you're not sure, that's a sign of concern. I understand we don't want to be non-humble people or unhumble people. I understand we don't want to be arrogant in our faith. But I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, with this idea of the assurance that we have that I'm going 
home. And that's the place that you and I can count on. Do you need to become a Christian today? Or are you living in a way that you know has not been right? Maybe for weeks or months or maybe for years or decades. And there needs to be some sort of correction made. You want to make that correction because of a God who says, I will. I will bring you home. And he will not bring you home if you are not faithful to him. And we encourage you to make whatever correction is necessary this morning. We appreciate so much your kind attention and hope that these things are helpful and encouraging. And if we can help you spiritually to make your life right with God in any way or fashion, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.